that was kind of weird. Good morning, City Light Lincoln. Oh my goodness. Like, so, so I don't know if you understand. Okay, so I'm one of the pastors here. Sorry. My name's Mo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. Oh my gosh. Like, to be able to stand here and say, Good morning, City Light Lincoln, is like the most humbling thing that I have ever experienced in my entire life. Like, literally, like, I am amazed at all the people in this room. Like, like Austin said, we, we really didn't know what to expect. We were like, well, maybe we'll have 50 people. Maybe we'll fill up maybe half the room or something. And by God's grace, you're all here. Amen. So, interestingly enough, six months ago, this was not even a thing. Like, no one was thinking about planting a church in Lincoln. No one was planting City Light Lincoln six months ago. In fact... All of this started in a living room of eight people praying that God would do a work through them in our city. And so I'm really excited about today. Like, I, I don't even know what to say right now. I just want to go and cry somewhere in a corner. But anyway, how cool is it that it started out with a, a group of people praying, and now Jesus is being worshipped today. We're going to preach the word today, and then some of you are actually going to find a spiritual family today. I mean, there's people standing in the room, like, how crazy is that? And so there's some people that's just, that we're here checking it out for a moment, and I love you guys. I'm thankful that you're here, and there's some of us that have been praying on our knees for months and weeks and, and days leading up to this point, and so today is more than just the, the start of a new church. It's actually the testimony, the story of what God is doing in our city and in our midst. And so to start that out, please open your Bible to John chapter 3. It's the Gospel of John chapter 3. Whether that's digital, physical, or whatever, you make your choice there. Um, it's more spiritual to have a physical Bible, but just... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So, John chapter 3 and as you open up to that, I want to tell you expect for the next few months. So um, I'll lay out some expectations for you. And obviously, as God had it today, he's, he could change some of those things. But as we're planning right now, what I want to do is kind of lay the groundwork. So what we're in right now is called the core team phase. Uh, and so that's the group of people in this room. Like, you guys are the core team. And so what you'll start to see as weeks go on is we'll start to see the building change. Uh, we'll start to see renovations. We'll start to see different paint colors. The, hopefully this nasty carpet will get out of here at some point. Like, we're going to see the building start to change over time. Some other things that will start to happen is, is we want God to speak to us through his word and start to communicate, okay, so what does it look like to be a Jesus-exalting, gospel-centered family? Like, we're going to start to walk through God's Word to figure some of those things out. And so, the focus of this time is not to deliver an awesome Sunday morning worship service. It's not for us to, to have really great Sunday morning programs. We're going to eat. Hopefully, we have enough food next week. Uh, we're going to sing. We're also going to go to God's Word as well. But I want to make sure that you understand that our goal in this time, in this season... At the end of this time, I want us to understand clearly what kind of Jesus is calling us to be. We as a church have some non-negotiables and some core values, and so I want to share those with you this morning because that's what we're going to walk through. We're going to walk through our family traits. So every family has their, their core values, their traits, the things that they practice and kind of run their grid through. So like ours is, if you have pizza, we come. 
Like, that's just the way it goes. My family, we love pizza. We cherish that. It's a high value on our list. And so with City Light, though, our, our core values is down, up, in, out. Down, up, in, out. It's, it's directions, but, but th- those directions have def- definition to them. And so today we're going to talk about the down. But first, I want to give you just kind of brief understanding of the other ones. So the up is actually our devotion to God. So what I mean by that is, uh, this is just the good news that, that Jesus not only came to save us from hell, but also that he, he promised to transform us and make us more like Jesus. And, and so he meets you where you are initially, but he, he lovingly doesn't allow you to stay there. He actually uh, pushes you toward growth and development. So that's the up. Uh, the in is actually the family. So us in this room. So, so the church is, is not just a building. It's actually God's family, like our family committed to loving one another, doing life, and uh, making sure that we support one another. So, so that's the end, is the family of God. And then uh, the last one is out. Out is simply put the mission of God, the mission. Uh, and so Jesus said this, actually. He said, just as, Father, as my Father has sent me, so now I am sending you to be a Christian is to actually be sent on mission and to make disciples. And so, so we won't be a church that simply exists for our own good, for our own pleasures. We won't be the equivalent of a spiritual country club. We will actually be the family of God on mission to proclaim the name of Jesus, okay? So, so that's, those are our distinctives, those are our values, but that's only three of the four. The, there's one that is all-surpassing, that's more important, more valuable than, than anything we do or say ever. And that is the down. That's the down. Austin mentioned this earlier is that, yes, this is exciting. This is fun. This is, I mean, we, this is worth celebrating because God's at work here. But, but the focus of our hearts has to be on Jesus. The, the primary message throughout all of Scripture is Jesus. The primary message that is proclaimed that saves people's souls, that changes people from death to life, is the gospel message. And so that is going to be our heartbeat. That's going to breathe into the up. That's going to breathe into the in. That's going to breathe into the out. And so I want to make sure that the core value of all of Christianity stays the core value of our church and our souls. So as, so as much as every week we might preach, we want to make sure that it's about the gospel. When we make decisions as a church family, we want to make sure that it's about the gospel. When we meet into our city groups, guess what? It's going to be about the gospel. Because that's what it's all about anyway. It's the one truth, the one message, the one common theme throughout all of the scriptures. And today, we're going to talk about that, but I want to keep it simple. We're going to ask one question. Hopefully, we'll unpack that. That one question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Is it simply a message? Is it, is it simply just some truth that we write down on a napkin? Or, or is it much more than that? And so, uh, as we look into our passage, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. Now, The first verse in that is a well-known verse. In fact, it's so well-known that within Christianity, we put it on t-shirts, we put it on coffee mugs, we put it on bumper stickers, we we make signs out of it. Because this verse is probably the most famous verse of all time. This verse is probably considered one of the primaries in all of Christianity. Now, I want you to look at me, though, real quick. Those of you who have been saved for a while... I want to warn you just today, just for a moment, just softly. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. What I'm saying is, after a while, when you get used to something, 
what tends to happen is that you, you progressively actually become more unfamiliar about that thing. Or, or I would even argue you may even start to not understand it as well. And so I want us to chime in today because this is a 2,000-year-old a verse, however, and we're in an old building and, and we're talking about the old scriptures and the old Bible. However, I want to tell you today, City Light, today this word here speaks true to us with a, a new life, a new vibrancy. And so I want to bring that to you today so that we might see Jesus more clearly, that we might not lose interest in Jesus, that our King might mark our hearts and change our perspective of God forever. So no, let me get, begin by adding some context just so that we know what we're getting ourselves into. So what's happened thus far is uh, Jesus has come to earth. He was born. And then um, he, he's just doing ministry all over the place. He's gaining popularity. And so a guy, Nicodemus, comes on the scene. He comes in and, and says, okay, Jesus, I need to figure out whether or not you're legit. He wants to see if Jesus is the real deal. And so, so he meets Jesus at night in privacy, and, and he wants to find out, okay, you got a lot of popularity with the people, but you don't have a lot of popularity with the religious leaders. So what you need to know about Nicodemus is the fact that Nicodemus is like the pastor of pastors. He's one of the top-notch guys. Like, if you're talking about, like, John Pipers or, or, or like, big-wig pastors, that's who he is. He's a top religious leader of his time period. And so, so he's questioning Jesus, but then as Jesus in his good, loving nature does, he, he actually that on his head for Nicodemus and starts to explain to Nicodemus what it looks like to have eternal life, what it looks like to have heaven, to actually enter into the kingdom of God. And then he even goes so far as to challenge Nicodemus and say, I don't know if you actually completely understand the truths about God. And so as they entered into this conversation, he also says, the son of man must be lifted up. And then when, so when we land there, when he says the son of man lifts up, he has this phrase. This phrase says, Here's what God says here. He says, God so loved the world. Now, this was a big deal at that. In fact, it's, it's a big deal today, but let me explain why it's, what that means for us. That the thing that for God to love the world means that God loves all kinds of people. He doesn't just love one kind of people. No doubt in my mind, Nicodemus was like, what is he talking about? Because up until this point, the preferential love of God was poured out on the Jewish people. So one kind of people. Up until that point. And so what Jesus is doing, he's, he's actually flipping that very narrow mindset or concept of who God is on its head in this passage. And, 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 and what Jesus wants to do is, he wants church, he wants the gospel to say, hey, the gospel is not just for a certain kind of people. Because what we like to do is say there's certain people that are more deserving or, or undeserving of the gospel. So when we think of who does that God actually love? God loves the rule keeper or the rule follower. God loves the sober person or the pure person. Or really loves that student who turns their homework in on time and doesn't procrastinate. We think that God loves the people that memorize scriptures and volunteers in kids' ministry, which I do believe there's a separate place in heaven for those people. But we also think that God loves people who love themselves. Or we think that God loves the moral person, the person who always makes the right decision. Or we think that God loves Americans. Or, or we would even go so far sometimes to say that God loves people who vote or look a certain way. But what we really are basically saying is that God loves the lovable people. What we're really saying is, is that God loves those who are a little bit easier to love than others. But let me explain to you right now in this passage, for us to say that God so loved the world, 
What we're saying is not that God's general posture toward you or toward me is anger, disappointment, or frustration. God's, God's posture toward you, towards me, toward people, His first primary place He goes is love. That's where Jesus goes with that. He says, no, no, no. God so loved the world. So He loves a diverse people from diverse places. God doesn't extend that love to just people that, are, that we would call good, but He extends it to those who we would call bad as well. So there's no category for the worthy or the unworthy. We're all unworthy. Jesus says, no, 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 no. God saves all kinds of people. Now that's a huge statement, right? So, so to say that God's primary posture toward people is, is love is kind of like, okay. Like you can say that if you want to, that, that God loves people, but how does that play out? Because it can't just be an emotion. It's got to be followed out by action. Anybody who's been loved knows that love comes in action form. And so we, we, we have a right to ask that question. So, so in our text, it says God loves his people so much so that he would send the one precious thing to him to die in our place. He sent his son. It doesn't say that he loved the world so much that he expunged all of their debts and all of their sins and just forgave them and let them go. No, 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 no. What he said is, no, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send me. I'm going to break the bonds of eternity for you. Here's what I mean by that. So in eternity past, so think as far back as you can go and then go beyond that, okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God in one person is existent forever in this unity. And then he says, I love you so much, I'm going to break the tightest bond that I have so that you can love me so that you might love me. And so that's an outrageous love. That's one that I don't completely fathom how you can send something so precious to you to love you and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you right now I, I understand it better now than I did before and when I first understand it was my year college so I was at college and if you were to look at me on the outside people thought I was a pretty good dude but on the inside I knew my heart of hearts I did not des- didn't believe that I deserved God's love that I would be able to merit God's love I, I thought that just maybe I might be able to sweep by at some other time when I cleaned up my life until someone came in and, and explained to me, it's not a work that I can do to obtain God's love. It's not something that I can physically do. But someone, a student, a peer came to me and just sat with me and, and listened to my story, but then said, hey, God loves you because he loves you. He entered into your life so that you don't have to be insecure about all of your wrongdoings, all the things in your heart that you might be feeling, that you might not be valued by God. No, 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 no. God love removes the insecurity because he has just this love that's unimaginable for us. So most everyone has a child, right? Or at least has a kid that you know. So think about that for one second. Just think about it in your head. Think about like just one kid that you would say is the most precious person, little child that you know of. Okay? Think of that person. Everybody's got a nephew, niece, cousin, child. Would you send that person into a place knowing they're going to die for someone else? Like, would you, like, for real, would you send them in a place where you know they were going to die for someone else, or even because of someone else? Now, some of us would say, okay, maybe the right person, sure. Maybe the person that, like, I love, someone that's, you know, returns or reciprocates love back to me, maybe that person, sure. But what about a stranger? What about a thief? What about someone who steals stuff? What about a murderer? 
What about a, a convict? What about someone who hates you? Would you send the child, your precious person in your life, to go die for someone who hates you? God did. God did that. In fact, in Romans 3.23, our brother Paul says that all, which in the Greek means everyone, has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us. We are those people. When he says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we're the stranger, we're the thief, we're the murderer. In fact, we're the greedy person, we're the judgmental, we're the, the selfish person, we're the sexually immoral person. But God, but God would love us so much that he would send his son. So here's the point one right here. If you're taking notes, point one right here, it says, the gospel is God's prodigal love for us in sending his son. The gospel is God's prodigal love for us in sending his son. So let's define that word prodigal for us because some of us have a misunderstanding of it, including myself up until like a week ago. Prodigal essentially means reckless giving or reckless spending of all resources, wastefully giving away. And so if we look at God's love, it was wasteful. It was reckless. He gave his love out to a group of people who hate him. He gave his precious so that he might become precious, so that he might become precious to us. You see, you, Christian, are uniquely and utterly valuable to God. Jesus is showing that his love goes beyond what we think Christianity is all about. See, a lot of times we take Christianity and make it into being something that's more like ten principles to a happy life. Like we turn it into these categories that 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 say, okay, if I do enough good things, then maybe God will love me and value me more. But in all reality, what God is saying is like, no, I deeply and utterly love the brokenhearted. I want to set them free because I love them. I cherish them so much. You see, you are valued. That value came at a cost. And, and so God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus because you were valuable to him. Jesus is the gospel. But then after all of that, you have to ask the question, though, right? Or at least I, I ask questions. I'm always asking why in my mind. Why, what, for what purpose would he need to send Jesus to die the brutal death? Why wouldn't he just wipe the slate clean? Why would he need to just do that? Which gets us to jump back into our passage here in verse 17. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So, so we often look at God, again, as this angry person looking for the opportunity to separate himself from us, right? Like we think of him like, oh man, I messed up. He's going to kill me. He's just going to off me. Or, or, we'll, or we'll look at our kids like, God don't like that. He's going to do something to you at some point. Watch. You watch. Karma. It's going to happen. And so we look at God just looking for opportunity to condemn somebody for something. But the truth is, in this particular passage, it, 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 it reveals the fact that God sent Jesus not so that we can be condemned, for, for, but for us to not be condemned. Because here's what con condemnation is based on. It says condemnation is actually a self-inflicted wound based on our sin. God is actually calling us to a new heart and a new believing. You see, to be condemned by God is actually more of a self-inflicted wound based on what God would say here. And God actually wants more for us. He wants us to believe. But you have to ask then, what do you believe? Right? And so, so everyone believes something. It's not even a question, actually, whether or not you believe something. In fact, it's not a question of whether or not you believe in God or the existence of a God. The question is, do you believe in his son, Jesus? Look at me. Look at me real quick. 
You're not going to heaven if you believe in God. That doesn't get you there. You must believe in His Son. That's the place. Jesus says no one comes through the Father except by Him. It's more than just disbelief. It's who are you believing in? Are you believing in you or are you believing in the Son of God? Are you believing in your circumstances or are you believing in the Son of God? Beliefs come before our actions, actually. Most, most people enter the, into the Christian church saying, I believe in God and therefore I do good things, and so therefore that gets me accepted. But in all reality, no, this passage says here, you're condemned unless you believe in the Son. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the only Son of God. There's nothing you can do to earn it. This word, belief, in fact, means for us to surrender, for us to give our lives over, for us to trust. So like, I want to ask you a question this morning. I want to ask you one, well, actually, it's kind of two questions. Do we believe that Jesus gave his life so that you might have life? Do we believe that we are no longer condemned by God if we believe in his son? Here's how that usually plays out with me. I usually just nod my head and say, yeah, I believe that. And I continue on in life, right? That's what most of us do. We'll, just, we'll give a verbal assent or, or a mental acknowledgement. Yes, I believe that. Check it off my list. I understand it to be true. But then, again, there are actions that will show whether or not that's true. So, so, when, so for instance, when circumstances are going hard, well, where, where are we usually at? On our knees. On our knees saying, okay, God, please heal me. Please help me. Only when we're in the most desperate places, because generally speaking, my normal part, I'm going to fix it or I'm going to destroy it. Those are my two options in bad circumstances, right? I'm either going to fix it or destroy it because I'm going to control it. I'm going to make sure that I take it for myself because I can do it. Because I've forgotten the fact that God would send his son so that I don't have to. And then when things are going it really plays out. Because when things are going good, I'm like, well, I don't really need that God all that much. I can actually... My competitive nature says, well, I can, I can do this on my own. I, I believe that my achievement or my performance will gain me popularity with God of the universe who looks at me and says, you're one of seven billion people, dude. Really? You got it on your own? Really? The eternal God of the universe? And so point number two, if you're taking notes, the gospel is believing that Jesus gave his perfect life for my condemned one. The gospel is believing that Jesus gave his perfect life for my condemned one. So, interestingly enough, so far, this seems pretty easy, right? Believe in the Son of God because he loves us so much. It's like, why would you ignore that? Like, why is that so difficult for someone to make a decision for Jesus if that's what he's offering? It would just seem like this, the most palatable message that you can come up with. And it's to help us out with that. Verse 19, it says, And this is... The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So, our, so what we see in reading this, to come to a conclusion in that, is that it's not simply just the decision. In fact, it's, it's a love-hate issue. Like, light is not lacking. Light has come into the world, but what we really love is darkness. 
That's what makes it hard. Our, our love is actually lived out based on the palate that we naturally have. What I mean by that is like the taste buds, the palate. And so, so if we live Christianity the way we naturally would do so, what we would say is buckle up, knuckle down, and, and just start to make the decision to do the right things, right? Like that's generally speaking our posture. So eat this vegetable because it's good for you, not because it tastes good. So I got a kid. His name's Uriah. He's, he's almost three in October. Dude is a meat eater, carnivore through and through. If you put meat in front of him, he's going to eat it. But you put one sliver of a pepper on and all of a sudden he's like, what are you doing? That's not food. Rabbits eat that. Like, that's who he is. And so me as a parent, I'm like, you need to eat that because it's good for you, right? I want to force it down him and say, you got to eat this because I'm like hoping eventually maybe he'll at least just eat it for the sake of eating it because I know it's good for him. But the truth is, he's not going to grow to love that necessarily if he just forces himself to eat it. Trust me, I know. Another example. Olives. The worst thing ever made by God. <laughs> Hands down, like the grossest food I've ever eaten. And I have tried time and time again. My whole family likes olives, like all of them. Like my kids, they'll eat them by the handful, no problems at all. My wife loves them. My mom loves them. Like they all like olives. And I'm like, okay, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I need to try it some more. And so I'll keep eating. And throughout my entire life, I have tried. I've even had it on my favorite food, pizza, and it just ruins it. Like I, I can't, no matter what I do, I can't just force myself to love something that doesn't taste good. And so Jesus doesn't call us to that. So, so to put it, Jesus doesn't just call us to scarf it down and to be a, normal, a moral nice person. He doesn't call us to do that, but he calls us to trust him so that he might change our hearts so that we might love him, so that he can change our palate in what we love. The gospel is not good advice, meaning eat what you don't like because it will eventually taste good for you. It's good because it's good for you. The gospel is not eat what you don't like because it's good for you. In fact, the gospel is good news. Good news that you put your trust in Jesus and he will begin to change your preference toward him. He will begin to change your taste buds. We can't have a distaste for do what doesn't taste good for us, right? Like ice cream, no matter when you put it in front of me, it always tastes good. I'm not going to grow in distaste for it. It's the same thing with sin. We love sin. We like it. And we can't lie and just say, yeah, I, I don't like sin. I hate sin. Really? Like you're a human being. There's no question about it. There are sins that we love, and so we can't deny it. We know that we do. But what he's saying is, I want to change your love and affections. Put your trust, put your faith in me. Not from a posture, posture of you bit or else, but of I know you're struggling. I know you're hurting. I know you're doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing. Why don't you come to me and allow me to start to form, start to shape your heart so that you might love me? Church, Jesus came not only to remove our guilt and shame, but he came to change the object and the person of our love. The gospel is not good advice for you to change your life on. This is point number three. But the gospel is good news that God changes your heart. The gospel is not good advice for you to change your life. The gospel is good news that God changes your heart. God loves the world that hates him. Can you imagine that? So much so that, that he would condemn his son to the cross. To the people that would hate him, here's what he's saying. He's not saying, 
love me. He's saying, I love you. Period. There's no conditions to it. There's nothing that God's tying it to it. It's an unconditional, perfect love that he has for us. We don't understand that because we don't operate that way, right? Like, like for, for instance, my wife is caring, loving, compassionate. She's a wonderful mother. Like, she leads well in our home. She makes sure that I don't get too fat and chubby. Like, she does some good work. She is beautiful. And so... Of course it makes sense that I love her, right? Like, she is awesome. Like, and so, of course I love her, but God does not look at our attributes, but he actually looks at his son's attributes of perfection and says, I love you because of him. I love you because I love you. That is the love of God that we want to make the focus of our church. The gospel message is just that, the love of God poured out. And so let's re- recap a little, a little bit. So our question to begin with was, what, what is the gospel? And so here's our point. So the gospel is God's prodigal, reckless love for us and sending his son. The gospel is believing that Jesus gave his perfect life for my condemned one. The gospel is not good advice for you to change your life. The gospel is good news that God changes your heart. This is what we're all about. This is the message. This is the message of the entire Bible. It's an extravagant God lo- God's love that is displayed throughout all of Scripture. And th- to be honest, if we're not about that, we need to go home. That's what we have to stand on. That's what we not only have to believe in, but we, we must be a people who, who walk in that truth as well. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. But God left us with um, a really great way to respond. So, so Jesus came and died for people who hate him, that be us, not to condemn us, but, but to give us life. In that, he left us a response, a reminder of that good news, and that's called communion. You might have heard of it. So to partake in communion is actually a family thing. So what I'm saying by that is, if you're here for the first time and you're like, man, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus right now. Like, I believe that truth. I'm going to walk in that truth. I want Jesus to come and change my heart, change my palate. They come up here and, 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 and have at it, please. But if you're sitting here and you're like, man, I first heard that message today, and I'm still really unsure of whether or not I can put my faith in that God yet. That's okay. I want to say that this is a place to say that that's okay, and there will be people in the back who would love to pray with you and, and pray for you, if you'd like, as we partake of the elements. And so here's how it's going to go. Just for instructional purposes and, and logistics, I want to make sure nobody falls over everyone. Um, so we're going to have the elements up here, uh, so the bread and the juice. And so, so what you'll do is you'll take the, the bread and then you'll dip it in the juice and you'll take of it. Uh, but what I want you to do is I want people to come this way to the middle and then work their way around the outside back to their seat. Does that make sense? So right here in the middle, come grab what you need and go back around to your seat. You don't have to wait. Like, go ahead and partake on your way or whatnot, and then uh, we'll sing and worship Jesus in song uh, as we do that, okay? Let's pray. King Jesus, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for your unbelievable love and affection toward us. We thank you that you would bring us here so that we might worship you. We thank you that you would send your son so that we might love you. We thank you that you would even consider us that valuable to allow us to even be a part of your family, 
to even call each other family because we have that one bond, that one unmistakable bond, the fact that we share in the blood of Jesus as our Savior. We thank you so much that we get to be here today. I just ask that you would start to move on our hearts so that people who walk with you faithfully in the good news and not our good works. In Jesus' name.